0: Transforming societies or economies can be a tricky thing. It takes years, sometimes even generations. All too often we find that we've become comfortable in the way we live, stagnant perhaps and resistant to change. Or if change is important, then it means that we've left our homes to go abroad and search for something else. Sometimes it's those very people who have left that will eventually initiate changes back home like the creators of the American India Foundation, who have been successful in changing the lives of more than 1.7 million of India's less fortunate. I talked with Bezad Larry, a San Francisco-based fellow, about how the foundation is helping to shape the next generation of leaders committed to impactful change, while also strengthening civil society in India to be more efficient and effective.
1: AIF basically came into being in 2001 after the Gujarat earthquakes. And uh, as a response to that, plus President Clinton approached uh, the Prime Minister of India at that time, Atul Bihari Vajpayee, to ask how he could assist. And so through those conversations, AIF was born. And basically a lot of uh, the Indian community in the U.S. mobilized to try to provide support to the people who had just gone through the earthquake in Gujarat. And what that basically led to was a lot of young Indian-Americans wanting to also volunteer their time in India. And so that gave birth to the AIF Service Corps. Basically, it was modeled sort of as a voluntary um, program kind of based on the Peace Corps, but much, much shorter. It lasted a few months initially. But after um, the... tragedy of the earthquake was dealt with, what happened was that AIF still had this pool of volunteers which wanted to continue in this new program that AIF started. So it actually got formalized and turned into, over a period of two or three years, into an actual fellowship, which sort of ran from September to June, sort of like a college semester, or rather two college semesters.
0: Transforming India through the work of the American India Foundation that's what we look at today on Asian Threads. Asian Threads. Asian Threads. Asian Threads.
1: Asian Threads. Spinning the tales of Asian communities and cultures, their personal accounts, their history, and their literature.
2: Asian Threads. Asian Threads. Asian Threads.
1: This program is sponsored by the Wing Foundation. current form it's uh basically a highly competitive fellowship program anyone between um uh, i guess anyone who is under 34 and has a bachelor's degree can apply and uh that includes american citizens and indian citizens and what that means is we have a super diverse uh, group of people applying last year we had about 650 applications uh, for a class of roughly 35, of which 10 are Indian citizens and 25 are American citizens. We've just sort of wrapped up the selection process, made our offers. We know what our class now looks like and who those people are. We still have some of them trying to figure out where it is that they're going to be placed. We have a relatively complicated matching system where we try to see what sort of skills the individual has. And what sort of interests they have and how that matches with a list of partners that we have and potential projects they can work on. We had about 80 or 85 organizations apply to receive a fellow this year. And obviously we only had about 35 fellows that we're sending. So, uh, a lot of fellows who were, who had broader skills that can be applied in two or three different organizations or areas sort of have a conversation with Uh, the organizations and try to see where they'll be a good fit. You know, what type of an organization they'll be a good fit with, what type of work really calls to them, what type of work they see themselves doing in the future and how this experience will better prepare them for that.
0: Bezat talked to me about how he used his own fellowship opportunity with the foundation to create a transformation in waste management in
1: India. Water uh, and waste are two big things that are very clearly apparent when you travel to India or China or countries like that which are still developing and are industrializing rapidly and where um, a large percentage of people are uh, basically switching from more traditional ways of living to more Western ways of living so you're uh, you're seeing a much greater increase in the amount of waste produced and very few very little infrastructure really to deal with that level of waste so um, I guess just growing up in both India and the US you know whenever I would attempt to compare my life in either place one of the things that would be most apparent was um, how differently we deal with waste in both countries you know how how just moving back to India it's much harder to get rid of something and know what will happen to it towards the end of its life. You know, you throw something away, and in the U.S. it's a little easier to predict its life cycle after you dispose of it. I decided I'd move back to India and I'd focus on this because it would basically help me uh, work on something that I cared about, which was the environment, but also work on something that is really a crucial need. And so I eventually discovered both AIF and the Clinton Fellowship. It was actually called Service Corps back then. But uh, I discovered the two of them, and then I discovered a third very crucial ingredient, which was the organization I ended up working with as a fellow called Nidan. And uh, Nidan worked primarily in Patna on a variety of different things. It's an organization that focuses on livelihoods and on... Uh, working with uh, community support groups and working on basically uh, bringing the very marginalized together in a way where they can continue doing the work they are but with uh, the ability to negotiate for better rights and basically a livelihood that is uh, a little more secure and safe. So what they did was start in the early 2000s a cooperative which bunch together waste workers in Patna. Basically uh, they called them Safai Mithras, friends of cleanliness. And so the uh, these were people who were already employed or rather self-employed in dealing with household waste. They would basically go around collecting uh, whatever was thrown out door to door and charge each household a small fee for their services and then go and get rid of the trash that collected. But what they did was by uh, forming these small cooperatives they were able to bid for government contracts where um, you know the municipal corporation of Patna or certain wards within Patna would then award uh, these bids, these tenders to any organization that basically bid for them as a as a way of uh, sort of streamlining the waste management process which is uh, required under municipal waste laws for each municipality to do. So that eventually grew into the idea that these small cooperatives should in fact be incorporated as a separate entity. So they started a private limited company, a, a social enterprise called Nidan Swajtara Private Limited, NSPL. So NSPL, once it was created, w- was basically able to jockey for better tenders and more contracts because it was now no longer a cooperative under an NGO was an entity on its own and so i came in as a fellow to Nadan in sort of the first year the first year and a half of its starting and so you know as any early stage startup it had lots of issues and problems um in basically securing and uh consolidating contracts with the government of bihar with the city of Patna, and with other localities and wards, and so, uh, so that gave me the opportunity to learn from the get-go how one would basically secure a foothold in the garbage business in in India, and especially in a place like Patna, which you know I'd never been to Bihar. And growing up in in the 90s in India, you know Bihar sort of always had its own image. Coming from Madhya Pradesh, it eventually ended up uh, being a very comfortable place to be. I made friends, you know. I learned a lot of Bhojpuri, I got to. Basically, just uh, live like a resident of Patna. You know, it was it was. Uh, I had no problems adapting and acclimatizing and becoming a Bihar,i and so um, through through these ten months, you know, it, it opened my eyes to a completely different perspective. Before the fellowship, I was sort of thinking about how I am going to go to India and I am going to do all this waste management stuff, and how I had all these ideas, and you know. Well, why aren't companies already doing this? Why aren't people composting on a large scale? Or wh- how hard can it be to sort of uh, have a more industrialized uh, waste management in- infrastructure? But, you know, when you're there and you see the sort of hurdles that cities like Patna have to cross over the next decade to actually get to systems which are heavy in terms of infrastructure and in terms of... Um, just logistics and moving large amounts of waste it's actually pretty eye-opening because you have you have various stakeholders such as the poorest and the most marginalized who actually pick up the waste and deal with the waste and have been doing so for generations because of uh, the sort of status that a, a lot of people in society sort of confine them to so uh, you have the first problem that N- Nidan was trying to tackle which was how do you get them more secure livelihood in that they're they're making a fair wage while doing this while at the same time protecting them from uh, people who might exploit them otherwise so there's a whole most of the waste pickers, rag pickers safai mitras in cities like Patna supplement whatever income they're making when collecting from households with all sorts of recyclables and um, mm. basically things that are thrown away that can be then reused. Uh, so any sort of paper items, basically kabar.
0: Actually, can you explain that concept, kabar? Uh, what is a kabariwala? Uh, how do we tell our
1: English-speaking listeners? Sure, it's it's sort of like... Um, uh, I think the way we think about returning cans in the U.S., you know, when you... Yeah basically have a recycling can at home or bin at home and you keep all your bottles and your cans and things uh, for which in many states you get a deposit back. You do that both as a way of getting these items, uh, keeping them out of the waste stream, but also because there's a financ- a very small but financial gain attached to it. And in India, um, the system of these recyclables, of Kabar, which is basically... Um, I guess a good translation is maybe junk Usable junk Resellable junk um, Is pretty big Because in in economies like India A lot of uh, what is thrown away Is actually uh, used or repurposed For something else And uh, what happens is that There are these kabariwalas These buyers of kabar Who are much higher on the social scale Than our waste pickers Who go around neighborhoods Basically on weekends Buying any sort of items that might be thrown away, so people will oftentimes uh, hoard, you know, their newspapers that come in every day for uh, a month or two months. Basically, make sure they have a decent amount to sell at once, since all of this, all these sales are made by weight. And so, um, mm. in in the same way, our uh, waste pickers would basically just collect all sorts of recyclables, be it paper or cardboard or things made of metal or cans or bottles you know whether they be beer bottles or juice bottles or whatever it might be anything that can be repurposed and sell it to one of these kabadiwallas every day and so they'd get a basically uh, another stream of income based on however much they sold that day but the big problem in that is that there's a very long chain of middlemen uh, in this system so uh, when Uh, an item is sold at the very bottom of the chain, it is not sold for what its true value is. So the waste picker is getting uh, roughly a third of what it'll be sold for at the end of that stream by the biggest Kabardiwala. So we noticed that there was a five or six step transition to when the item was actually handed over to the end processor. So what we try to do, and this is one of the programs that I set up, was creating a cooperative of uh, basically 10 small cooperatives of 20 women each in neighborhoods in Patna City, which is the old part of Patna, where we basically bought all these uh commodities from them all these recyclables from them and we just kept it in a warehouse and we sold it directly to the end processor when a particular thing was in demand and we kept none of the profit we were basically just uh we just acted as their warehouse and their area to store and we sort of track who had sold us what and we'd give them the cash there but all of all of our transactions were based on the prices that we would get from the end processor so we by by cutting out you know a chain of five or six middlemen we were able to increase um their income on particular items by 20% and on some things like paper during the off season right before school start by almost 60% because you know uh notebooks are produced more often sort of towards uh, when the school season starting so uh suppliers, uh, basically producers of really cheap notebooks, will start buying a lot of recyclable paper. And so we'd sort of just sit on the paper till then and then sell it when the demand was highest. So by just sort of understanding how the market worked and how the system worked, we were able to get them a lot more money for the same work that they were doing. And we tried to couple it with Nidan's education program so that we could basically also target their kids. So our idea was basically that we're giving you more money for the same work so now you no longer have to make your kids work during the day as well so they can sort of just hang out over here in our school and learn and it was it was free so it was like a two-pronged approach and it worked really well and it was one of my proudest moments during the fellowship
0: more than two-pronged i think because from what you're saying, it appears that not only were you working on improving the efficiency of waste management, but you are also transforming the s- social structure, if you will, of the labor. Why does this social structure exist in the first place? And does it go back to sort of this old Indian heritage that we have of your, your s- social status being representative of your
1: work? Yeah, or uh, perhaps inversely your work being reflective of your caste and your social status there. So um, almost all of the waste pickers we worked with were not doing this because they were poor but rather they were poor because this was the only thing they could do. Not not that, that we would deal with basically large groups of people who were from the same caste and occupied in this profession but that their caste would be important to those who are hiring them for other things so they're basically confined to this because others would not give them jobs which were even a little bit better than just going out and collecting trash just because of how the caste system still is in Bihar
0: would you say you have effectively been able to change that or transform that
1: No, it's, I think it's a multi-generation process. So we were able to see change in one major aspect, which was in self-respect. So, the, you know, very little things can sometimes change how someone perceives themselves. And one of them was the uniforms that we had. So doing this work while wearing a uniform has a different connotation than doing it without having a uniform. And um, even having a little thing like an ID card shows uh, which shows a formal employment is a big step for someone who's been informally employed their whole life. And the, that is actually a pretty big struggle for a lot of them is to, to get a formal job, you know, to the concept of, um, getting into service. When, when we have, uh, someone wear a uniform, when we have someone have an ID, when we have someone open a bank account, that goes a long way in sort of establishing their entry into a society which has all those things you know we often take those things for granted but a large majority of uh, India's citizens don't have what we consider to be the tenets of citizenship you know job security or even um, government proof of your being a citizen you know a voter ID card um, things like that so, or a bank account, which is very basic. So many of these things went a long way in uh, generating self-respect for uh, these people we worked with the Safai methods. And a lot of the conversations I had with them uh, about their children and what their hopes and ambitions were for their children were very different from what a lot of them said at the Uh, what they thought at the beginning of Nidan's programs so a lot of the women we worked with had been working with Nidan for six or seven years and when I you know when I talked to them about their own journey with Nidan and what they did when they started out and where they were now and what they felt about their work then and what they felt about their work now it was different because um uh Majority of them who had been there for multiple years said that the same households which uh, they worked with for these years basically treated them a little bit better each year with a little more respect. In that they would talk to them slightly more politely. They would, or, or even that they would talk to them. So they basically started out where um, a lot of people would try not to make contact with the person when they were giving their waste to him, or would point out. What needed to be cleaned, like the drains around their house, really rudely, and so as uh, Nidan itself grew to have a larger network of operations within certain wards, it became apparent that um, others took an interest in the work Nidan was doing, and in and, and I think this takes a few years, and I think the second part, wh- how how people respect others, takes generations.
0: Is another AIF fellow also based in California. She spent 11 months in India in 2011 working at Akanksha, an English language school that serves the needs of the local community in Maharashtra. This is her story.
2: One of the most memorable experiences I had while I was um, at Akanksha was watching one of the school lotteries. um, And Akanksha schools sort of run like charter schools in the US. Uh, You have to apply to attend and then they literally pull names out of a hat um, to admit you. And to sort of strike a gender balance, there's a boy's hat and a girl's hat and there's an equal number pulled from each one. Um, and you have to live within sort of a kilometer of the school to be eligible to apply. So once all those criteria are met, you you can participate in this lottery. And Akanksha is very special in that it provides free English medium education to to students in India, which doesn't exist outside of Akanksha. There aren't any free English medium School, so this is sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for families living at or below the poverty line to get the kind of education that wealthier students are getting. So I, um, I had the pleasure of watching one of the lotteries. I, I just sort of sat in the room uh, while it was happening. This was at one of our Bombay schools, uh, was the first one that I saw, and immediately, sort of right at the time the lottery was supposed to start, there was a line out the door of parents sort of waiting to come into the room. It was mostly mothers. Uh, there were some some fathers, but mostly mothers. They sort of came into the room, and there was this weird... Excitement and anxiety that you could feel. People just sort of were piling into the room, piling into the room, and eventually there were people sort of spilling out into the halls and sitting everywhere waiting for this lottery to happen. And a few days before, the school had found out that um, it thought it was going to have two kindergarten classrooms in the next year, but it turned out it was only going to have one. So it had half the number of spots that people anticipated going into this lottery. And that was being explained at the beginning of this meeting. Nobody knew that yet. So people came in they were pretty excited they were told there were really only going to be 15 girls and 15 boys that were going to be admitted there was a lot of tension in the room after that and then a neutral person who i think was from the corporator's office actually pulled names out of the hat so that there was sort of no no slips up the sleeve there was sort of nothing that could be no foul play that could be um called so um the lottery happened and you could People got so excited as their kids' names were being called. And then the lottery was over. And there were, you know, at least 70 parents sitting in the room whose, whose kids were not going to get to go to the school. And with that, were not going to get to get an English education. And on top of that, didn't actually have a local school in their community that they could go to. So not only did they miss out on the opportunity to go to this unconscious school, they were sort of missing out on everything that, that came with that. Several of the mothers in the room started crying. They went up to the principal and were sort of begging, begging and crying and, and just a little, it, they got a little bit hysterical, um, some of them. And um, I couldn't understand what they were saying, but I had um, one of the teachers who was with me who was translating some of the Marathi and the, the mothers were talking about how this was it for their girls. This was how they were planning their girls' lives. They were going to get into the school and that was going to make their lives. And if they didn't get in, that was it. They weren't, there was nothing that they could become. Watching that for me was really difficult. I actually, I went I had plans with my friends that evening that I canceled and I sort of went back to my room and just sort of sat around and was really upset and depressed about the whole thing. And it wasn't because sort of knowing about educational opportunity and what that means, particularly for girls. I mean, I've known about that most of my life, you know, you hear about that. It's not sort of something surprising, but to actually see firsthand how mothers were reacting to the news was really difficult for me educational opportunity is educational opportunity there are certainly varying degrees of what that means we're very lucky in the US that everyone's guaranteed a free education and that you know we're fighting to make the quality better for everyone but at least you have access to it and and for me seeing the very very opposite end of that spectru- spectrum and and that other extreme of you know my my daughter's life is now over because she didn't get into this one school i think provides a lot of perspective and for me actually surprisingly provides a lot of hope about the american system and sort of where we can take it and what we can do here for for students.
0: Creating change abroad, whether it's India, China, or any other country, not only meets the needs of what is required on ground, but it actually changes the thoughts, emotions, and even career paths of those people who went there to impact change in the first place. Now that's what I call transformation. Asian, Asian, Threads. Asian. Asian, Threads.
2: Asian,
1: Threads. Asian Threads is sponsored by the Wing Foundation.